0: No secret that our country is badly divided and riven by profound moral, religious, and political differences about what constitutes the good, the best means of promoting human flourishing, and even the proper meaning of the term civil rights. The question thus becomes: How do we maintain mutual respect and comity, and retain sufficient cohesion to be considered a true society? My guest, Roger Severino is deeply involved in working through these questions from conservative policy and legal perspectives. Severino is a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is a national authority on civil rights, conscience and religious freedom, the administrative state, and information privacy, particularly as applied to health law and policy. He is a regular contributor to National Review Online. Before joining the EPPC, Severino was the Director of the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led a team of over 250 staff enforcing our nation's civil rights, conscience, and religious freedom and health information privacy laws. He served from 2017 to 2021 and was the longest-serving OCR Director of the past three decades. Prior to joining HHS, Severino served for two years as director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, advocating for life, family, and religious freedom policies. Before that, he was a trial attorney for seven years at the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, where he enforced the Fair Housing Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Severino started his legal career at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty where he was legal counsel and chief operations officer and defended the rights of people of all faiths under federal and international law. Severina holds a J.D. from Harvard Law School, a master's degree in public policy with highest distinction from Carnegie Mellon University, and a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Southern California. He has been profiled in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and The Hill, and has appeared on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and PBS, among others. In 2020, the New York Times dubbed him and his wife Carrie a conservative power couple to be reckoned with. Severino also teaches salsa and swing dance in his spare time, and he wouldn't want to see me as a student. Roger, welcome to Humanize. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's good to have you. I like uh, uh, my listeners to get to know my guests a little bit as a human being. What got you interested in a legal career, particularly one focused on civil rights?
1: I wanted to actually have, let's call it a wholesale impact. And I saw law not so much as a way of dealing on a client-by-client basis. That's not really why I got into law, but on having a broader impact. Laws are, of course, a... Uh, embodiment of societal values, right? That's that's one fundamental way of thinking about it. Our democratic process is largely formed around passing laws and having an impact on lawmaking was what attracted me to the law. And uh, I was always attracted to the, let's call it the nonprofit motivated lawmaking, public law. I did not see myself as a corporate attorney. I don't think I would have been happy doing that. And law for me wasn't necessarily the thrill of the combat that attracted me to it, because some people do, they, they love that aspect of it. It was for fighting for a right cause and a just cause. And it started in law school when I was head of the Pro-Life Religious Liberty Club and grew through there. So it has always been a, a public-minded, public law approach.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because... Uh you could have made a lot of money in the corporate world, but chose instead to do, as you called it, the nonprofit aspect, which uh, may, I think has greater life satisfactions, even though perhaps puts less money in your bank account.
1: It's definitely a trade-off. I do have colleagues who have made a killing, uh, but there, there's more to life than money, of course. And I saw that the, the best way to reach fulfillment in my career was not simply be a hired gun, but to be really focused on the issues that I think are impacting the most people in the most profound ways. And in your introduction and your podcast, it's about the nature of human flourishing, the good life. Those sorts of deep questions are intertwined in the law. And those were the issues that I I was drawn to Early on, and that's what I focused my career on: on dignity of the human person, on civil rights, on equality, on now in the, in the issue of the proper understanding of science and medicine. All these incredibly important issues. How could we not be uh, excited to be working in those in those fields, even if it comes at, at, at you know some financial trade
0: off? We hear a lot of talk about uh, what is sometimes called the administrative state. Uh, As you see, what does that mean exactly?
1: Well, it is not what the founders intended. We had, of course, the three branches of government, and now we have a fourth, which was not part of the original vision, which is the administrative state. Most of what governs Americans' daily lives from the federal level comes not from our laws, but from federal bureaucrats and the regulations that they promulgate and the regulations that they enforce. Most people don't realize that the thousands upon thousands of pages of federal regulations that come out every year have the force and effect of law, even though your representatives in Congress have not voted on them. I was a regulator in charge of both enforcing the rules and establishing the rules for health information privacy, HIPAA. I was the the nation's HIPAA regulator. And that power is is uh, rather breathtaking, right? And just think that every time you go into a doctor's office, all the privacy restrictions that protect your privacy and sometimes are quite annoying to deal with, those things are there through federal regulation, not because Congress ever authorized a particular uh, provision or not. It was delegated to the bureaucrats, and that's why people need to be aware, that's where policymaking happens now. So they have to be engaged and first find out what your government is going, is doing and then get involved and let your voice be heard and and hope we'll be able to talk about ways to do that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, It's interesting. When I, uh, I first discovered the administrative state, I wrote a book on aviation safety with Ralph Nader and I was back here in Washington DC doing some research and I was stunned at the power that the FAA has and uh noticing that the congress actually had not passed the laws that the faa uh in terms of regulations was promulgating and it, then you suddenly realize when you look at statutes, what they say is, these uh, legis- uh, legislative uh, proposals, the Secretary of Health and Human Services will determine this, or the Secretary of, of Commerce will return, determine that. What that means is Congress isn't passing those laws. They're saying, okay, you tell us what the law is. You tell the country what the law is, Mr. Secretary or Madam Secretary.
1: Yeah. It, Congress has moved from passing laws to passing the buck. They are giving the responsibility to unelected federal bureaucrats to deal with the toughest questions of the day because politicians are running away from them. They'd rather not deal with it. They'd rather try to claim some victory with some statute saying they did something. But if you read it closely, as you said, it's usually saying the secretary shall determine X, Y, and Z within their discretion. Look at what has happened with COVID. All the restrictions that have come through the federal agencies, which Congress has not voted on, all that came through an abdication of responsibility from our elected representatives to unelected bureaucrats and pliant judges who go along with it. Now, I'm hopeful the judges with the, the Supreme Court with its current makeup is going to push back and say, we're not going to be deferring. To the bureaucrats anymore it has to be consistent with the laws that congress actually passed and that means congress has to do more of the heavy lifting itself they have to have more subject matter expertise they can't just throw their hands up and say well we we don't have enough time to look into these things yes you do yes, that's your exactly job. you have exactly. to have staff that are fully knowledgeable on all the issues and not simply rely on rule by experts so called i mean again COVID is a great example. When you give too much power to experts uh, that are self-anointed, you're going to end up in some some blind alleys and it'll end up hurting the public good. You have to have the public input and oversight and basic common sense in many ways because you can't let the agencies do what they want and not be accountable.
0: Yeah. In some way, these bureaucrats are more powerful than elected officials because they see presidents come and go. They see senators come and go, but they're there to stay because they have civil rights, civil um, uh, job protection.
1: That's right. And sometimes the appointees are seen as almost like the summer help. Oh, they're here for a while, but they'll be gone and the, the career people will still be there. Now, I was Very pleased with my staff when I was head of the Office of Civil Rights. The career staff were highly professional and uh, were just trying to do their job. So there, you you have to recognize there's a lot of good people in the federal government. The, however, there are some, there are some, who abuse the public trust and have used their position to throw their weight around to say they know best to shut people down, and they never stand for election. They never right. actually have to answer to the American people directly. And that's an inversion of what the founders created when they established our federal system. The federal government it, it, it has a lot of authority. The, the executive should be energetic, but it must still be accountable to the people at some point. And permanent bureaucracies uh, invert that invert that structure.
0: Right. And and let's get to your specific work uh, in the Office of Civil Rights. Um, what is the role of the head of the Office of Civil Rights in HHS? What is your role?
1: Well, HHS is the largest agency by budget in America. Its budget would be in the top 10 of countries in the world if it were a separate country, easily. It touches every aspect of health and human services, from Medicaid to Medicare to adoption services to even uh, refugee resettlement. So it is vast, it is vast. And everything they do in what they fund has to comply with civil rights. So recipients of federal funds can't discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, age, and religion. And also the federal government itself cannot discriminate on that basis. And one of the things I focused on was making sure that there were watchdogs within the federal government, watching federal actors, those bureaucrats, because oftentimes there was a either absolute ignorance when it comes to conscience religious freedom or hostility and all the other civil rights People by and large said, okay, federal government can't be discriminating based on race, etc. That message has gone through in a lot of ways. Not all the way, but uh, a lot of the way. But Unconscious and Religious Freedom, it was practically absent. And it led to things like the Little Sisters of the Poor being forced by HHS to assist in the provision of contraceptive coverage for fellow nuns. It's just, it's ridiculous As a notion, but the federal government was hounding them to the bitter end to the Supreme Court time and again, until they finally got protection and HHS under Trump, we reversed those rules that were forcing nuns to violate their conscience. But again, it was those bureaucrats that were passing the rules that thought they knew best, that would have no respect for conscience and religious freedom and uh funneling money to organizations that want to force people to assist in abortions for example the american people have had a long consensus that whatever you think about abortion legality you don't force doctors to perform it and nurses to assist in it but again if you don't have enforcement of our laws the government is going to fund these things and it's illegal so that's one of the things I'm most proud of is starting a conscience and religious freedom division within HHS to give it the proper attention and focus. Cause this is in fact the first freedom and it is embodied in so many federal statutes that were being absolutely ignored under the Obama administration and now are being ignored again, unfortunately under Biden.
0: That's a, um, almost a, uh, refusal to, um, Properly administer the law, which is a violation of one's oath of office. It would seem to me if you're not going to enforce uh, the law as it is written, and even the rules that uh, have been based on those laws, so uh, I, I consider that an abdication of one's oath of office.
1: It's an abdication of duty, right? There, there is always some discretion. The police officer doesn't have to have to give a ticket to every single person. That, uh, goes five minutes over five miles over the speed limit. We're not talking about that. We're talking about egregious violations. We had a nurse at the University of Vermont Medical Center who had told her bosses that she could not assist in an abortion. It was contrary to her religion, her beliefs. She got into the practice of medicine to save lives, not to take them. Well, one weekend, she was called in to what she was told to help with the after effects of a miscarriage. But it was no miscarriage. The doctor said, don't hate me the minute she walked in because they knew this was an abortion of a live, healthy child. And she was put in this position where she was told, well, we know you object, but if you don't do this, it will be patient abandonment. You could lose your job. You could even lose your license to practice medicine and put in that horrific position. She buckled under the pressure, went through with it and was scarred ever since. Not only is that morally atrocious, it was against the law. And we opened up an investigation, got to the facts, issued a notice of violation, handed it to DOJ, who sued, and for enforcement of the federal statutes that prohibit federally funded organizations from doing this sort of thing. They can't discriminate on med- against medical staff who don't perform abortions. Well, what did the Biden administration do? They dropped the case. They flat out abandoned this nurse ignored this violation of law. It is just an outrage. And sadly, this nurse has no other recourse now uh, because there isn't a private cause of action on this particular claim. It was the federal government turning their backs on a victim out of pure abortion politics. The Biden administration has put in some abortion extremists, starting with Javier Becerra at the top as secretary. And they're following through on the, the, the promises made to the extreme left wing uh, that elected that helped elect Biden, right? They're they're the ones who answer they answer to most. So we have these horrible situations where the law is not being enforced in some of the most open and shut circumstances, and people are suffering.
0: Right? Supposedly, you know, the American way is if they didn't like the law that specifically protects medical personnel from having to perform abortions. I mean, that's very specific in the statute. If you don't like that, change the statute and have to justify it in the, in the hall of Congress and so forth. Instead, they just refuse to enforce the law and getting back to your, your policeman uh, metaphor. uh, If the police officer said, I'm not going to give anybody a speeding ticket because I don't like Mm -hmm. the speed laws, that's a violation of duty. If he says, or she says, well, this particular person was only 3 miles over and I'm just not going to give this person a ticket. I'm going to give them a warning. That's discretion. Would you say that's a fair uh, description in yeah. terms of using and, your medical And it's
1: it's it's worse than that. It's because they are doing this for political purposes. Right. right? They are answering to the abortion lobby. They're doing political favors instead of enforcing the law to defend human life. Right? That that's what makes it the most Uh, egregious of all right in in defense of human life some doctors and nurses will not assist in abortions and they're saying you must do it anyway because the their ideology is so total and authoritarian that they can brook no dissent and no exceptions so it's worse it's almost instead of a police officer it's it's a political thug right that's that's using the law and and enforcing it for political ends and that's an abuse of our rule of law
0: I think that uh, gets us pretty well to the medical conscience issue. Um, But before we get into that specific thing, I'd like you to describe what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, what it does, and why it's important.
1: Sure. Uh, RFRA is the the shorthand for it. It was passed in 1993 after a Supreme Court decision curtailed free exercise rights under a Supreme Court precedent. It was saying under that precedent, which has been chipped away it's Employment Division versus Smith is the case. Um, it might be overturned in the coming years. Well, that decision said if there is a neutral and generally applicable law that isn't specifically targeting religion, if it burdens religion, if it shuts down religion, tough luck. Uh, then that that's not what our founders had in mind when they they put in the free exercise clause. It had a robust view of religious exercise. And of course, there are plenty of laws that risk can restrict religious exercise and they have to be balanced. And RFRA restored a balancing test and say that if you are substantially burden, burdening religious exercise, you have to have a compelling reason for doing so. And you can't simply hide behind the fact that, hey, we're treating everybody badly. No, if you're treating religion <laughs> badly you have to justify treating religion badly same thing we do with race right if you're there's there's many many uh the left loves the idea of disparate impact and some laws actually support it Where if you have a disparate impact on the basis of race that disproportionately treats somebody worse off even though it's not intentional that could give you a claim you could take to court well on religion you have the same sort of thing where bureaucrats simply say Uh, We don't care how badly it affects religion, we're doing it anyway. Well, sorry, you have to take into account the effects and you have to make sure you have the best of possible reasons to have that sort of burden on religion. And so say, for example, a hypothetical law that uh, prohibited the sale or consumption of alcohol, prohibition. That's a neutral law, but of course that could end up banning communion at churches right? That have communion that actually has wine, right? Uh, that sort of thing would be unthinkable to say that you could do such a thing and ban these central sacraments so long as you make the law neutral enough and there's no balancing test involved. riffer restored that test and it was supported with a massive bipartisan consensus signed into law by William Jefferson Clinton and Chuck Schumer was a sponsor of it. So we had this amazing support because it was the right thing to do. Now, the left has now tried to disavow it and, and, and act like it doesn't exist or limit it or even revoke it, especially on the question of soji, sexual orientation and gender identity. Now that religious freedom is bumping up against those issues, now they're backing off. They're moving away from the principle of religious freedom for all, and they want to limit it. So on these sexual issues, they want to say there is no religious freedom, and that's just wrong.
0: Yeah, th- th- there was a, a massive, uh, almost universal belief in RFRA, RFRA, uh until the LGBT issues came to the fore, and that fractured that consensus, right?
1: It did, on the left. On the right, it still held firm.
0: Right, but the the, and, the and, bipartisan kind of uh, bicultural, bi-value uh, system consensus that existed prior to that. Correct.
1: And, and here's the thing. The, the left was on board early on because religious freedom protections benefit minority religions the most. And at the time when Riff, the debate over RIFRA dealt with things like Muslims uh, having beards in prisons and Native Americans having right to sweat lodges uh, and peyote and questions of uh, a lot of minority religions being discriminated against and needed the protection. All of it is true. However, guess who the minorities are now against the bigger cultural forces? Pe- people who believe that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. People who believe in the embodiment of human beings as male and female, and they can't be changed surgically or otherwise. That reality; those are the are the now, in many ways, the minority views according to prevailing cultural winds. And now they're being protected, just like the other minority religions were protected in the 90s and early 2000s. And now that they're being protected, the left is abandoning abandoning the principle of religious freedom because it butts up against one of their pet issues, which is LGBT advocacy.
0: And to be clear, your position is the Muslim should be protected. Absolutely. uh, Native American uh, practicing traditional religion should be protected. And the Christian or Muslim or or, uh, Orthodox Jew who has a traditional view of uh, male and female relations should be protected in the same fashion.
1: Precisely right. And that's absolutely the right answer, which the left is abandoning. And the Biden administration is abandoning. Biden is in favor of taking away Rifra from what's called the equality act which is a sexual orientation gender identity law that would be imposed on the nation with no religious protections a specific carve out because they want to get at people of faith they want to label them as bigots and ostracize them from society and that's not how a pluralistic society works there has to be space for dissenting voices we were told that the lgbt cause was all about living and letting live no that was a lie. It That was an excuse meant to open the door where now it's our way or the highway. There is no exception. You must bake that cake, even if there are many other people willing to do so. There's a case at Supreme Court now, 303 Creative, of a, a person who wants to do web design to celebrate marriages, but won't do so for same-sex unions. And They've been told by the court in the state that they can't be in business that way, that they are discriminators and that's gone up to the Supreme Court. It should be an easy case uh, in favor of the creative expression and the religious freedom of that business owner. There are plenty of options and why would you want somebody to grudgingly do a poor job to celebrate a same-sex wedding when it's against it goes against their their beliefs when there are plenty of other options? Why would you do that? To make a point, to drive people out of business, to ostracize.
0: Yeah, I was going to get to that, but since you brought it up, it seems to me that, uh, and, and this is true in medical conscience, which I'm about to get to, that it isn't that the person could not find the service that they're looking for. You could always find a different baker willing to bake the cake you want designed. You could always find a different web designer. It's and you could always find a doctor probably to do an abortion or to engage in transgender um, transition procedures. But it's the message that is sent when someone says, no, I think this is wrong. Uh, I'm not going to do it because it it violates my conscience. It's that Mm -hmm. message that they find so painful, not the actual fact of being uh, of that particular person, not performing that particular requested service.
1: And, and here's the thing with, with all totalitarian movements, they're totalitarian and authoritarian because they ultimately lack confidence they cannot stand any cracks in the armor, any voices or the dissent out of pure fear, fear that their arguments cannot convince people because they won't convince people. Denial of biological realities will not ultimately convince people and denial of human life at its earliest stages will not ultimately convince people because we know science on both those questions. But there's this authoritarian impulse to say, well, well, because they believe this so thoroughly, and many of which believe they're doing the right thing. I'm not gonna right. question their, their sincerity of their views. Now, of course, a lot of the advocates and leadership are very cynical in how they push it and distort the truth, but I'm not gonna question the sincerity of their you know, underlying beliefs. I think it's flatly misguided and wrong. But if they had more confidence in the truth of the matter, they wouldn't be so authoritarian and totalitarian about it. It wouldn't be all about cancel culture. It wouldn't be about doxing people and chasing people out of public square, trying to label people horrible names instead of dealing with the arguments. And that's your first sign that there it's it's coming from a position of weakness. Weakness philosophically and weakness on the matter of the truth, even though they may have massive cultural power, which they do.
0: And it kind of violates the the uh, premise of the United States and the idea of federalism. Uh, it strikes me that uh, people who take your position generally are saying, let San Francisco be San Francisco, perhaps with re- exception to the sanctity of human life. And, and, Tulsa, children. and children. There
1: are right. definitely limits on, on what right. should be done on
0: kids. But let Tulsa be Tulsa, at least with regard to adults. What the uh, progressive left is saying let San Francisco be San Francisco and force Tulsa to be San Francisco.
1: Yeah, that's precisely it. That's precisely it. And it's, it's forced by many ways. Now, there's the explicit gov- uh, levers of government power. HHS has proposed to make transgender treatments an essential health benefit through regulations, again, not through an act of Congress. In April, they're going to propose to say if doctors don't perform hysterectomies for sex reassignment purposes, including on minors, they're labeled bigots and will lose federal funding. That's going to be proposed in April. It's this use of government force and coercion and not to mention all the cultural forces of the woke corporations that are now on board and the medical associations have been captured, academia, the legal profession, so many of these other cultural forces are are saying that there's no room for debate. And again, what are they afraid of when they're debating the issues? What are they afraid of? They're afraid they're going to lose the argument. And that's the problem. We want to be able to have the argument. What is the science on transgender treatments on children, is it helpful or harmful to sterilize them? Because that's what's being proposed and done today. Sterilization of children permanently, they will never be able to have kids of their own. Do they have the ability to consent to such a thing when they can't buy a gun, buy alcohol, buy pornography, get into a mortgage, have a credit card, have a driver's license at 12 or 13, Uh, all these
0: things they can't
1: do yet we're saying they have the capacity to do so when it comes to their own fertility permanently
0: and, and, and their bodies. I mean, you have 13 and 14 year old girls receiving mastectomies. That's right. Some of whom have later, uh, you know, when they've, they've gone through the maturation process have said, wait a second, I'm really not a boy, but the damage has been done.
1: Yeah. Upward when upwards of 90% of kids who have, any gender dysphoria issues, any sort of hatred of their own body, however it manifests. If left alone, without interventions, they grow out of it. When nature takes its course, we wanna help people become comfortable with their own bodies. Any sort of body dysmorphia, whether it's anorexia, we don't say to somebody who who hates their body and they say they're fat, say it's a a 13-year-old girl facing all this peer pressure, right? and say she is medically quite thin, we don't say, you know what, you're right, I'm gonna affirm you in your belief that you are fat and let's put you on a diet, uh, right. let's let's put you on laxatives, let's do anything we can to get you thinner uh, and make you feel better that way and affirm your view that you you think you are overweight when the reality is not, okay? It, it's to, to use that model when it comes to a, a child with gender dysphoria, who hates their female or male embodiment and want to literally have it removed. And that's what's being done. Uh, In some states, it's unlawful to counsel a child to try to accept their body, right? They call that conversion therapy because they're presuming somehow that they know with absolute certainty that a girl was born in a boy's body, which of course is a scientific nonsense. There's no such thing as a girl being born in, in a boy's body. It's girls who are uncomfortable with their body, but it's okay to be a girl. It's okay to be a girl, to accept your body, right? But in some places, the states are moving to say that is unlawful, quote, conversion therapy to counsel people to
0: be accepting of their body. And this That's is even if the today. parents want that therapy for their child. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. And, uh, and also, there's uh, in the education area, I've been noticing that uh uh, there's actually been a movement, at least in a few schools, maybe more than a few, to keep the parents in the dark when a child is having that kind of an emotional crisis about their gender. And so the uh, the uh, school will secretly, or the teachers will secretly, use a different pronoun and so forth for the child and, and not let the parents know mm-hmm. that their child's going through this existential crisis.
1: Yeah, it, that's, it's it's conversion therapy in the other way. Right, the true conversion therapy is being done by the LGBT activists. Right, so what they've tried to label, they're they're pointing to some horrible examples of things like shock treatment. And things. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about talk therapy. Somebody trying to come to terms with the changes that are happening in their body. Right, just talk therapy. Um, whereas what they're doing is talk therapy of the purely what they call the affirmation model where schools are asking kids and prompting children to volunteer information about sexual preferences and identity on how they want to dress without any parental involvement, putting ideas in kids' heads that are very impressionable and young. And what Florida did was saying, at least with kindergarteners to third grade, that topic is just going to be between the parents and their kids. Teachers should have nothing to do with pushing this on kindergartners to third graders, right? And that shouldn't be controversial in the slightest. Yet there's been this uproar from Disney and others, again, the woke brigades saying that this is somehow a terrible thing. No, it's a a great thing to empower parents to be the ones to guide their children. Kindergarteners to third grade, no business with the teacher quizzing them on their sexual preferences at those ages. I don't think they should be quizzing them at any age Um, uh, about those things. Um, But if it does come up, the model now that has actually been enforced by the U.S. Department of Justice in schools is that it must be a quote-unquote affirming model, that you must adopt new pronouns and allow kids access to locker rooms, even if it doesn't match their actual biology. And that could have some horrific consequences. And we've seen, I mean, I, I recommend everybody watch the story of Abby Martinez. This was a presentation at the Heritage Foundation recently. And listen to her story of what happens when school districts intervene between a mother and her child who's going through some really tough times and depression. She ended up losing custody of her child. So much was done behind her back. And in a school district that was under... A settlement agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice to implement these transgender policies, with horrific consequences. And I, I recommend everybody listen listen to this story. It is happening today.
0: Is is that available online at the Heritage it Foundation? It is indeed. Okay, good. And uh, just for clarity, you were speaking about the misnamed, supposedly don't say gay bill in Florida, which is still pending. You know, this brings something up. I I, I did some research on you and, and uh, what people say about you, Roger. And uh, I saw that the LGBT human, uh, you know, civil rights groups have basically called you a hater. And um, this is the second time I've ever spoken with you. Uh, we had a, a long conversation once before when you were in the HHS. And and even your demeanor in this discussion today, there's no hatred that I can discern, no dislike of people. Uh, How do you respond to that accusation? Well, I've my first outreach
1: event when I was head of the office for civil rights was with those people who said nasty things about me. I, I wanted to hear directly from all the LGBT groups, all the pro-choice groups, and to their credit, they accepted my invitation Or something like 16 or 17 meters, and, all, and in addition to that, other follow-up meetings, etc., including with Dr. Rachel Levine, who's a transgender activist, who's now n- the number three at HHS, and, and we had met to discuss all of these controversial issues. Now, number one, I did that to show them that I respected them, right? As human beings. As human beings, absolutely, right. and, the, the, and people dealing with questions of sexual orientation and gender identity have to be treated with absolute compassion and respect, okay? It was never an issue about denying particular treatments based on identity. That was never the debate at any point uh, through my four years or before or after uh, as head of that office it has always been about what is best for society with regard to particular treatments and who does them who should be forced to them are they medically indicated what is what is the true nature of discrimination and civil rights and at a certain level we're we're going at the same thing a respect for human dignity and rule of law however we do have very different approaches as to what that means in actual policy prescriptions i want what's best for human flourishing. People on the other side of the question, I don't question them wanting what's best when it comes to the question of human flourishing. We have different understandings of how to get there and what that actually means. So I don't demonize the folks on the other side even though they've demonized me. I mean, I've had transgender activists over for dinner, literally, with my family um, because it helps build, build bridges and, understand, and understanding. And I think that's the way it should always be. Uh, the more we are compassionate, the more we communicate that that's what we're we're doing. The more it will convince people because that's exactly what we're doing.
0: Can we distinguish between objecting to the particular treatment and objecting to the patient? Uh, yes. For example, um, a, a doctor may say, "I'm not going to give this uh, child with gender gender dysphoria puberty blocking." But that same doctor should not be allowed to say, I'm not going to set that child's leg when it's broken because that child identifies with a different different sex. Could, can we say that that's a distinction that we can think about?
1: That That's an important one. And the LGBT left in objecting to what I was doing on, at HHS would trot out a few shibboleths, these hypotheticals that were detached from reality of things like you said that we were somehow enshrining the ability of somebody to deny care based on identity now that is an insult to the medical profession and especially for those of faith right because they were objection to religious exemptions and protections as well people who run religious hospitals are going to the poorest areas highly minority communities doing it for free when they take somebody in with a gunshot wound do they don't quiz and say wow this may be part of a you know a a gang drive-by shooting um i need to figure out first whether you are a perpetrator or not before i save your life nonsense that's not what doctors do they take everybody to help them and to heal them regardless of their circumstances so it's absolutely insulting to the medical profession to say anybody would do such a thing it's a very different thing however For doctors to say we don't think this is medically indicated we think this is going to hurt you instead of help you medically so we're not going to assist in a sex reassignment surgery and remove a healthy uterus in a child right that is a radically different thing to say um and that's the issue that was was being debated, not all these other hypotheticals that were meant for political reasons to distract. Now, I don't question the sincerity of opponents on the other side. I also don't question their cleverness. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing when they're distorting the truth, when they're misnaming bills and statutes, when they're pulling, up, pulling out the the, uh, uh, the, the insults. It's, it's the political move to try to dis- distract from what actually is going on.
0: Yeah, and and when it comes to uh, the issue of uh, of, let's say assisted suicide, euthanasia, and abortion, uh, if you compel a physician or a nurse to participate in those against their moral beliefs, you're actually forcing them to participate in the taking of a human life. And I can't think of uh, many things that would be more authoritarian than that. As you know, so long as you're not in the military following a legal order, to be forced to actually kill. Uh, is, is a remarkable uh, assertion of, of authoritarian power it seems to me and that's precisely what the medical conscience issue also gets involved with abortion and mm-hmm. also to a lesser gr- degree now assisted suicide and euthanasia but that's also beginning to be generated yeah and
1: and abortion and assisted suicide has always been treated differently in law where it where it has been allowed now the supreme court god willing very soon is going to Undo Roe v. Wade and the states and and federal legislatures and others will be able to stand to protect life again. Uh, When that happens, forces on the left pro-abortion side are still going to push to force abortion on the American public, forcing doctors to do it, making the practice of OBGYN absolutely anathema to people that are pro-life. And that is part of a very, very obvious strategy that they're doing to try to capture the medical profession on abortion, on gender identity issues. They're trying to say that this is going to be beyond debate, that this is what true healthcare is when it is not. There's nothing more contradictory to healthcare than the intentional taking of human life. And on the question of conscience, even people on the, on the left should realize that doctors aren't forced to assist in executions of duly convicted criminals this could be murderers and rapists etc well it's actually no longer rapists the supreme court said you can't do that anymore but murderers um the the left will even say yeah you can't force doctors to assist in an, an execution well extend that that solicitude to doctors when it comes to abortion as well right that, that principle should be inviolable and, the interesting, and, that, and that's being ignored
0: yeah the interesting thing is the left doesn't want to force doctors to participate in executions because they like the message of a doctor saying no I'm a doctor I don't get involved in killing but Correct. when it's involved with abortion and assisted suicide they don't like the message with the doctor saying the same thing I'm a doctor I don't get involved in killing so that's a that's an interesting irony let me uh, read something from that was co-authored by Ezekiel Emanuel on this medical conscience issue, just to let people understand very specifically what we're uh, addressing here. Ezekiel Emanuel is probably the most prominent bioethicist in the country. He was a, uh, uh, one of the prime architects uh, of, of the Affordable Care Act, which is sometimes called Obamacare, a very major advisor to President Biden during the campaign on COVID issues. And this is what he said in the New England Journal of Medicine, Making the patient paramount, basically he's saying this is a matter of patient rights. Making the patient paramount means offering and providing accepted medical interventions in accordance with patients' reasoned decisions, Thus, a healthcare professional cannot deny patients access to medications for mental health conditions, sexual dysfunction, or contraception on the basis of their conscience, since these drugs are professionally accepted as appropriate medical interventions. In other words, he's saying that if the medical profession says this is acceptable, a doctor has to do it as a professional obligation. And then he goes on to say, abortion is politically and culturally contested. It is not medically controversial. And then he says, if it is controversial, then the doctor has to refer. So two questions. What do you think of what Ezekiel Emanuel said uh, on the main body of of that quote? And second, what do you think of this idea that that has come out now that says, okay, if a doctor doesn't want to do something, they don't have to do it so long as they find another doctor willing to provide those procedures? Okay, so in
1: terms of who gets forced to do what, I think he, he couldn't be more wrong. Doctors have to have the ability to exercise their independent judgment and say, I am not going to do this particular surgery, etc." based on their understanding of the medicine. It's the do no harm principle. You would want doctors to be able to say no, right? You would want that. And Generally speaking, there are other options and other people willing to do it, especially when it's a question where it involves a taking of another human life, that that one is an easy one, right? I mean, in in many states, abortion is going to be illegal because it's not healthcare once Roe v. Wade falls. But on these other questions where it's not necessarily taking of a life, but it could end up hurting a child forever and sterilization and things like that, you want doctors to be able to say no this is contrary to medicine, uh and and say they're not gonna take part in it. Right. Again, there are many issues that the left would would decline to do uh and provide consultation on. Um there are some give you
0: one of them many times. Circumcision. There are many Mm -hmm. doctors who think that infant circumcision uh, is, is a mutilation and they don't want to be involved in it. And it seems to me that they should not be forced to be involved in that any more than, uh, any other medical procedure of that kind, particularly since these are elective procedures. This isn't a matter of life and death. If you don't do this, this immediately, this patient will die. These are, are what used to be called elective procedures. That is, it is something that you plan ahead of time. And it strikes me that uh, a doctor should not be forced to engage in an abortion or stop a puberty any more than a doctor should be forced to circumcise. Yeah, th- that's right.
1: It, it, the, the doctor should be free to use their judgment on those sorts of things about particular procedures, right? We, we want doctors to always be thinking about what is best uh, for the patient. Now, there are limits on what doctors can do, Right we're talking about doctors declining to do things, right? That right. that freedom should be quite broad to say, I don't want to do this X, Y, and Z procedure. You could do that if there's no money in it, right? If, if there's certain procedures that you're absolutely capable capable of doing, a patient requests it, and you as a doctor say, you know what? There's just not enough money in this. You're free to say no. You're free to say no. But- for an ethical reason, you're not that. That makes no sense. And we saw that in things like contraceptives and pharmacies. You could you could not stock contraceptives in pharmacies if it if it doesn't uh, uh, make enough money. If the profits are too low. But if you do it for a religious reason or an ethical reason or a medical reason, oh no no no. Then the the left will will come to try to shut you down, and and that's just absolutely inconsistent. Now there's some limits on what doctors can do. And things that they they should not be doing, right? So there there are definitely some some limits there, especially when it comes to minors and consent on on the gender identity questions, um, which all the tr- cross sex puberty blocking drugs and hormones are off label experimental uses.
0: That's right. That's the other right. thing I think a lot of people don't understand that these right. were approved for uh, puberty um, uh, dysfunctions. Uh, medical problems that somebody might have in puberty. They were not approved for this particular purpose. That doesn't mean they're illegal, but they have not been tested for this and they have not been approved for this. And you're beginning to see uh, in uh, Sweden, for example, uh, a major hospital has refused now to do these puberty blocks because they said that the benefit is no longer um, clear and the potential for harm, such as uh, losing bone density is very clear. We're beginning to run a little short on time, and I want to get into one other area of your advocacy beyond medical conscience, and that is the vaccine mandates. Um, When you were at the HHS the last year, uh, that's when the vaccines are being developed. Did you all uh, discuss whether or not they should be mandatory at that time?
1: There was a presumption that the vaccines were going to be out in time. It was actually... Before the election it it, it was uh, the the trials were completed, but the actual uh, pharmaceutical companies sat on that information. And I think for political purposes, some some dogged reporters should figure that one out. But we weren't talking about mandating it, right? It was getting the, the, the as much vaccine as quickly available as possible. It wasn't about mandates, and it's gone much farther when the Biden administration first promised there would be no mandates and then changed its views and said, okay, now we're going to impose it. Um, There's simply no authority for a federal mandate. OSHA, of all places, doesn't have any sort of health expertise. And the interesting thing about the OSHA mandate, this was for workers, it was because they had no place they could possibly put it, right? HHS would be the natural place to deal with health issues, but there was simply no authority for it. I mean, we never thought... In the in the Trump administration, that we even had the power to do such a thing, um, but then they found OSHA for a workplace safety. I mean, you're thinking about hard hats and railings and things like that, but not vaccination. So I'm glad to see that the Supreme Court slapped them back. Unfortunately, they did push a CMS one through. So now the medical professionals who were being hailed as heroes during the throes of the first you know year and a half of the pandemic are now seen as villains and being fired, even though they were taking all the same precautions of PPE and masks and, and uh, disinfectant that was considered safe for the first year and a half for medical professionals. All of C- considered CMS unsafe. Is
0: refers to
1: the centers for Medicaid and Medicare services. So they do Medicaid, Medicare funding and they fund hospitals and that regulation said, unless you are uh, vaccinated as a medical professional in these federally funded hospitals, you'll be fired and they have been fired and that that is And yet we a, have a nursing
0: n- nursing shortages and staffing problems and yet we're suffering we're firing people even if they have natural immunity and and there are studies that have come out that show that if somebody's had covid and they've recovered from it they do have antibodies that help protect against the disease
1: yes and, and better than the vaccine because the, the vaccine efficacy efficacy has been waning Whereas natural immunity has not when it comes to reinfection and for the federal government to simply ignore that, that's just ignoring basic science and it it reduces their credibility. You wonder what is really going on when they're hiding this information. And by hiding this information, I want to be very explicit. Before the OSHA mandate came out, OSHA had the requirement on businesses to report adverse vaccine reactions. Okay. It's a health and safety uh, data collection. They got rid of that requirement to get the safety data on the vaccine, and they were very explicit because they don't want to somehow discourage people from getting vaccinated. They wanted to hide people, inform- they wanted to hide information from people about actual vaccine adverse events. Well, that's, anti- science.
0: That, that's yeah. anti-science. That's anti-science specifically for po-
1: political purposes, and yeah. then they issue the, the the mandate. So they issue a mandate to require people to get vaccinated after they they got rid of the requirement to report any adverse effects from that very mandate. So you wonder why people have questions about what's actually going on and whether or not they should trust the government. You know, there's your answer uh, as to why there's skepticism.
0: And when you get into coercion and when you get into stacking the decks on these studies and so forth, uh, then you wonder why people are questioning uh, the honesty and uh, of, of the institutions Um, One of the things that's bothered me a lot, and I want to get your opinion, is uh, the use of the private sector as an enforcer of government policy. (laughs) The idea that the government can't do certain things because there are checks and balances. Uh, For example, Congress, uh, if they had the power to pass such a law, they wouldn't be able to get it done because of political reasons. So we'll just say, okay, United Airlines, you enforce this mandate or, uh, you know, um, Apple computer, you enforce this mandate on your employees and you're really getting to the place. It seems to me that the private sector is becoming an arm of the, of the public sector in terms of enforcement of policies.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's this unfortunate blending where you have the government funding private entities and there's political agendas behind it. And then the woke corporations are now trying to enforce these policies on their own. It's it's all very sort of incestuous, right? Some of the same people go in in the, the it's called the the revolving door in government, out of government, into the pharmaceutical companies, into HHS, the regulators become the regulated, and it it's it's very much swampy, and that's one thing that <laughs> that bothered me when I got there. Again, I was a regulator, and the number of lobbyists that were knocking on my door, trying to get my attention, asking for favors and handouts, and uh, it was quite distasteful. As one of the things that I was surprised to see how endemic it was, uh, and I, I really, I had no patience for it, and I let them know very quickly that I, I didn't. But yes, it's it, it's it's part of this sort of medical left woke government industrial complex that uh, is is all sadly uh, kind of reading off the same song sheet.
0: Yeah, I, I've been nudging an idea in my head that perhaps the civil rights laws need to be amended to also include a, a political viewpoints. You know, that's not anything to do with breaking the law, but that you're beginning to see uh, banks refusing to uh, do banking for someone based on their politics. Uh, we've seen uh, banks refusing, for example, to uh, uh, or insurance companies refusing to insure gun manufacturers or gun shops do you think that the civil rights laws need to be expanded to include political viewpoints?
1: Well, for there are civil service protections where the federal government can't fire people because of their political affiliation. Now I know that the Biden administration has gone after the conscience and religious freedom division, I think for absolutely transparent political purposes that I helped stand up. Um, So they need protection. The, whether or not we should broaden out to a broader political discrimination as a as a civil right it i would hesitate because that's expanding the power of the the federal government however there is a broader question that you're touching upon and that is the concentration of political power in the woke tech sector and the woke corporations our 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 self-government is premised on an educated citizenry and the free exchange of information and ideas. The public square, that's what the First Amendment protects in terms of free speech, the public square. The public square as a physical space is pretty obsolete in our modern age. The public square is virtual. That's where information is exchanged and it's being dominated by Twitter, Amazon, Facebook, Facebook. Instagram, and those actors that aren't acting in the public interest, they're they're using their dominant monopoly power, and it is monopoly power because of network effects. You can't just build another Facebook from scratch, even if you do a better one. It's it, it's it's uh, almost impossible to undo those network effects. So when you have these market failures that are hurting the public good and pushing up what is a fundamental presumption of democracy, and that is an open public square, we should look at things like regulation or laws that could help undo that.
0: Basically turn these companies into like a utility, that they have to be open. Yeah, there, to all there are companies. various
1: options. Yeah. There's whether they're public utilities, whether they're equivalent to company towns, uh, whether it's anti-competitive and they're abusing monopoly power. There, there are many ways to approach it, uh, but it's something that that I think absolutely has to be addressed because it's 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 impeding the American vision and our self government. It really is.
0: Yeah, that's a that's an issue. I think I'd like to address on a future program. Uh, you started this interview by saying you wanted to uh, help people know what they can do. So why don't we basically end this interview on that note? Uh, what do you think people who are alarmed by uh, the things that we've been discussing? What should they do, and how should they go about trying to affect change?
1: Sure. At the, at the federal level, be aware of regulations coming down the pike. So at, um, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, we run an HHS accountability project where we inform the public of these rules and how to get on regulations.gov and file a comment. This is the best way for you to have an input on how you are being governed by bureaucrats. You, it doesn't have to be long, but it has to be. Follow comments. Raise your objections. Raise your suggestions. Even if you like something, you could say that too, but let your voice be heard that way. If you don't raise those arguments at the regulatory level, they are effectively waived, short of a few ex- exceptions. If you, it's use it or lose it. So follow me on Twitter, you know, Roger Severino underscore, where I publicize these sorts of things, and and be involved. Comment, and then secondly, be aware of. Who these bureaucrats are, who is in power, and what is actually happening at the federal level. So much is going on that goes under the radar. And again, if the big tech tech companies let us do it, spread the word. Spread the word of what your government is doing on all these issues of health, conscience, gender identity, children. Help spread the word because people need to know this is what your government is doing.
0: And we'll have uh, on the uh, program notes your Twitter address and also the link to the EPPC center that you described. Finally, what's next for Roger Severino?
1: Well, I will be starting shortly as vice president of domestic policy at the Heritage Foundation. I will still be at EPPC, right? So I will be dual hatting to a degree, and that's just going to be exciting. And Kevin Roberts, the recently installed president of heritage is bringing such an incredible energy and vision uh, and he's a fighter and I'm so happy to be rejoining the team because I was at heritage uh, before HHS rejoining the team to fight the fight for you know the 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 true vision of American values human flourishing and doing it the right way with the right people and I'm absolutely confident Kevin is a person to to lead heritage in his new very exciting phase in its history.
0: So onward, Roger. Thank you very much for being on Humanize.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org/slash-human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.